Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Today it is Q&A time. We put it out to the people. The people have spoken. We're going to answer some quick fire ones to begin with and then we'll expand on some as we get into the show. Emily, what are we talking about today? Well, it's interesting. There's a diverse range of questions and the more I post about asking the questions, the more intense and diverse they become, which I'm really excited about. Uh, today we're going to look into a little bit about the actual first home buying process and what happens when so much confusion around that but we'll see what happens let's do it okay first one off the top samuel mcpherson asks what is payable when what uh the steps for a first home buyer in New South Wales. Well, we won't just keep it in New South Wales Emily we'll go nationwide for all the good people out there indeed so when we talk about placing deposits down and, and stamp duty and and the remainder of the deposit if there needs to be one. Let, let's start right back from the start. So we put an offer in, the offer's been accepted. Let's say it was 500000 and we need to put a form of deposit down to commit to that property. Now you can decide, you can put in the contract what that amount is, but commonly it's 5 or 10%, right? So you work out what cash amount you're putting into the deal or equity and the banks will tell you how much they're lending. So let's use the example of uh, 10% here. Um, Samuel, you would put in 50,000 um, before settlement. Now you might have 25 to get the deal done and then 25 uh, when settlement comes. And at that same time, the banks would release their funds that they're going to lend to you. Um, and you would also pay the stamp duty at that time. You don't need to pay the stamp duty at the start when you commit to the property, but you do need to pay it on settlement unless you've gone into an off-to-plan apartment or something similar where it might not be due for two years completion, but you've got to pay the stamp duty uh, as soon as you commit to the property at the start. I just want to unpack the logistics a bit more on the deposit because a lot of first home buyers get very confused around the percentage they're lending versus the percentage they're putting up for the actual deposit of the sale. So people were like, but are they two different things? How do they factor it in? So let's go with your example, John, of a $500,000 purchase. If you were for the total value of the $500,000 putting 10% down, so $50,000, and that was the same figure that you, you gave, a 10% deposit at the time of signing um, and the contract uh, and the property is yours. That money basically sits in the agent's trust account until settlement rolls around. And when settlement day comes, they factor in that money that you've paid. So it's it's forms part of the overall deposit. I think there's a misconception that they're two different things. And I know being a first time, there's a lot of terminology to learn. But that money sits in the agent's trust account at settlement, 
The bank brings what they're going to bring to the table. They account for what's in the trust account. If there's a gap in anything, then you pay what uh, the remainder that's left over might be a few thousand dollars. Uh, and that all gets collated at settlement time. So don't be worried if you're confused by that. It confuses a lot of people. Um, but just know that that upfront deposit you've paid for the sale of the property is factored in at the time of settlement. Yeah. And I think that's why you, you don't need to be a maths teacher. You can just use your conveyancer and they will spit the numbers and say, look, this is what you need to prepare yourself for in two days time when the property is going to settle. And they work it out with the uh, the vendor's conveyancer. But I think, Emily, where I've seen people get confused is in this example, instead of putting down the 50 grand, uh, the 10% right when they commit to the property, uh, they might only put say $5,000 down or $20,000 down. And then they lose sight of what they actually have to put in just before settlement. I think that's where the the grey area is for a lot of people. Indeed. I hope that clears things, Samuel. So another thing just on that as well, um, Samuel's asked like how long do you get to to pay uh, things? So it's really about how much you pay up front versus the time frame for settlement. So if uh, you were still on a savings plan and you had a three-month settlement, you could actually factor in three months' worth of savings to go towards the completion uh, costs that are required for the purchase. Um, settlements do vary and they are typically stipulated um, in your offer um, unless the vendor has something very specific that they've said, this is the only settlement time frame we're taking or the only settlement date that we're taking. Um, generally speaking, uh, 45, 60 90-day settlement is pretty stock standard across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And they've also asked at what point do mortgage repayments start after purchasing? Well, if it settles on the 23rd of February, which is coincidentally today, generally the bank won't require another repayment for another month. Um, that's generally, but it, it's, uh, it, it is varied. So just be prepared. I would personally have a month's mortgage repayments up my sleeve as I settle. Yeah, great idea. And every bank's different. So speak to your broker. I think that's hopefully clarified the points at which money is paid. And maybe just as a side note to touch on, don't be worried or stressed about that money going. I know it sounds funny, but a lot of people get very upset when all that money goes and they forget that what it's going towards or the fact that they did spend a long time saving it. And if you've spent the time saving it, it means you know how to save and you probably can do it again. You've got the discipline to do so. Uh, A lot of first home buyers get very anxious of just seeing that money wiped out of their account. But it does mark a huge milestone, the fact that you've been able to collate a deposit and your stamp duty and you're on your way with your property journey. Yeah, yeah, pop the champagne. Uh, he's asked a dicey one to finish off. When Would you get in trouble for not telling a broker or bank that you don't have dependents so you can borrow more? I'm sure you're asking for a f- friend there, Samuel, but um, you wouldn't essentially get in trouble, but it's, it's probably just not ethical. <laughs> Uh, very timely. I just attended a compliance uh, meeting for a group of mortgage brokers and I was a little fly on the wall in the presentation. And there was a report uh, that I think they interviewed or they uh, surveyed 11,000 um, people who have a mortgage and one in eight had lied on their application specifically around dependents to get more um, borrowing capacity. So, yeah, it's a bit that scary. doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and, and some people don't mean to lie, but it's just something that they've missed, so that's that's fair. Um, but in an extension to that, the mortgage broker will get in trouble 
if you've told them that you've got a dependent and then you say to them, look, I don't want you to say that we've got a dependent, that's on the mortgage broker. They could lose their license over that. So that that's the risk that that uh, business would carry. Yeah. Now, moving on to some more rapid fire ones, because people have put some good questions in that sort of like just ask our opinion almost, want, yeah. want some insight. So Leighton Avery has asked or has proposed, I guess, that so many people in Sydney own investment properties that are worth so much less than what they paid for them going back as far as 2015. How long do you think people should hold a loser? Ooh. Poor. They're a bit like a bad partner, aren't they? If you're not getting along. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting uh, Leighton says that in regards to Sydney because housing prices have only gone up in the last six or seven years in Sydney. So not sure what type of assets he's referring to there. It's a really good question. How long should we hold something? Um, and it's a combination of ego. I, I don't want to admit that I bought a crap property. And also what is this property doing for us? So I think two things, I know it's a quick fire response, but cash flow and capital growth, if it's doing neither of those things for you, you probably have to make that hard call, uh, especially if you can take your cash back out and put it into a better performing asset. I reckon at a guess, particularly knowing the Melbourne market as well, if it was 2015 purchases, they were sold the dream in the off-the-plan apartment space. There's certain developers, and this is actually probably some insight for anyone who is looking at off-the-plan, um, particularly in inner city living. There are some developers who are just amazing marketers and they really do sell you the dream, particularly with the amenity and the makeup of the block. Obviously, the location is one factor, but uh, when you look at high prices that people paid back then, I can almost guarantee you that correlates with an amazing marketing campaign that did sell people the dream and they got to sell them at a high price and selling out of them, they will be selling at a loss. So it's a bit scary, but you got to know when to let them go. Yep. Next quick fire comes from Logan June. I love that name, Logan June. Is it possible for a parent to guarantee your loan when they own a block of land without a house on it? or when they are in the process of building a home but it hasn't yet completed to be a livable dwelling, assuming there is enough equity in the property. Uh, interesting one, and I feel Ooh. like, John, you have more insight on this than I do. <laughs> oh, thank, <laughs> Quick thanks for the throwing this grenade my way. Um, yeah, look, essentially, Logan, if there's equity, you're right, there, it is able to be used um, for as a guarantee. However, when there's a process of a build uh, the, the bank's sort of pressing pause on it because they can't go out and value this home because it might be just a frame or it might have um, no windows in it, no internal fit outs or anything. So they can't value it. Uh, well, if they're going to value it down is probably what I'm saying. So I would, uh, in an ideal world, you would wait until the build's completed to then uh, use that parental guarantee. And, and it's a good question as to whether they would even consider it or not um, through that process. But if it was a block of land and it was owned outright, uh, then there's no reason why the, the banks wouldn't guarantee that property. So it'd almost be better to do one side or the other, right? Like if they own the land before they commence building and it was owned outright at that point or on the flip side, once they've completed the build, they're going to get the best valuation that comes in because it's a completed dwelling. They're kind of the in-between could be a bit wishy-washy with what the value could be. 
Yeah, because we just don't know what that builds up to. Like they're, I don't know, playing devil's advocate, but the builder could go broke and there's half a house sitting there for the next two years sort of thing. So, yeah, there's a bit of uncertainty there. Um, But it all comes back to LVR and, and, and what loan is against the value of that particular property. James Porteous, how do you keep up with the market? What are some good resources? Is it as simple as tracking your property and some favourites on realestate.com? Yeah, James, um, probably a bit more than that, I would suggest, Emily. Definitely. And I think the question off the back of this is also how often do you need to keep up with the market? Like for some people, they keep up with the market because they just love property and they just really want to keep an eye on everything. For others, they only really educate themselves on the market at that point in time when they're going to buy or sell. So in terms of keeping up with general market trends, uh, I would be looking into commentary provided by CoreLogic on a lot of data that they give out. Um, I'd also be looking at following and engaging with people who transact in the market quite frequently and, and put out reports. I wouldn't necessarily say it well, depends on what side of the fence you're sitting on. A lot of real estate agencies provide reports, particularly, for example, like Ray White, they give nationwide, they also give statewide and then suburb level reports. Uh but you've got to keep in mind it is marketing material to help want to sell your property. So, um, <laughs> you know, and then really, I never, I never thought they oh, did really? that for that reason, Emily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always a motive. Um, but then on the other side of the fence, if you listen to people who buy property or in the investment space and things like that, you know, podcasts and the like, then that's probably more coming from the angle of you know, is now a good time to buy? Is now a good time to sell? So. Yeah, I think there's an array of resources out there. I personally um, keep up to date with CoreLogic a fair bit, um, but I don't like with the properties that I own, it's not like I check every couple of months what's selling in the area because it's a long-term strategy. So it doesn't, it's kind of irrelevant until it becomes a need to know what's going on. Mm. James, I think if you if you took a general interest in it or you're looking to buy in that particular area or whatever the case, you could jump on realestate.com in your suburb and put in the type of property and the filters that that you want for what either you've bought or what you're looking to buy um, and see how many are for sale. That's a a starting point. And then tick the box of under contract, under offer and just see how many properties go missing from that search. So for example, if there's 50 for sale and all of a sudden you tick that box and, and 10 go missing, that's 20% that are under offer at any one time. So that to me is a, uh, an okay market without being hot or cold, right? If there's 50% under offer at any one time, that's extremely hot and property's moving pretty quickly. You get off realestate.com and ring some agents in the area and get their take on the market and see if that marries up with what that realestate.com search does. So it's a combination of a few different things um, to, to get your feel on it and generally keep an interest in it. I think there's lots of different data point markers too because some people just rely on clearance rates which obviously doesn't encapsulate what you've just spoken about, John, with the under offer um, percentage of the market because auctions, you know, they disappear straight away. But don't rely on one, just one data source, be diverse. And I think just because the media reports clearance rates, it doesn't mean that that's the... um, that's what's happening in the market in your area. It's it's a very broad data point. It could be quite the opposite. So Kirsten Ann has asked a great timely question around pre-auction offer. Uh, Pre-auction offer advice and tips as it seems agents are much more open to these lately. And I hear you, Kirsten, I hear you because a lot of things are getting swept up before that magic auction date. 
And when that happens, it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, the vendor's getting nervous and thinks it won't perform well at auction. Number two, there might not be that many interested parties and the agent is worried they'll find another property and they'll lose their buyer. Uh, And number three, it could just be that the agent wants to wrap it up. Sometimes I've been in situations where I know that they're actually really under the pump and if they can sell a few prior at a good price, they will facilitate that. So that is happening a bit more. I don't know if you've noticed too, John, a few more pre-auction sales happening than probably this time last year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it depends on the agent and their ability to, or their business model per se. So that you're right. There's a lot of business, uh, a lot of agents that will be more open to pre-auction offers and and potentially accept those to get on with their business and find a new listing. And that unfortunately does happen. So that's great potentially for a buyer looking to get something that's uh, without the competition of auction day. Um, more pre-auction offers. And, and sales tell us that it's a cooling market. Um, but on this, on the other hand, I had a client last week who went to auction in Sydney and there were literally, there were five registered bidders, no offers, and there was just, a, it was basically silence and it got passed in, no offers, nothing happened, see you later. So the, the vendor was budge, uh, not budging from their price and the buyers clearly weren't prepared to pay that price. So there's, there's different um, versions of events uh, based on the vendor's thoughts and also the agent that you're dealing with as well. Indeed. In terms of some helpful tips of how to go about um, putting a pre-auction offer, first and foremost, be aware of the auction rules because uh, in different states, they they kick in in different timeframes. I know in Victoria, it's three business days prior to and post a scheduled auction date. And that means your offer needs to be unconditional. Um, it's under an unconditional contract. So be aware that you need to have completed your due diligence, including any building and pest inspections that you wanted to do, um, getting the contract reviewed, any additional uh, compliance that you want to be across before placing the offer. And then one big tip I would give, regardless of it being a pre-auction setting, is put an expiry on your offer. It is okay to put a 24 or 40-hour time frame to say, I've got another property in mind. And actually, we just did this for a client this week. We had another property in mind that goes to auction on Saturday and we put a um, 6 p.m. Wednesday deadline because we need time to get ready for auction if we miss out on this other one. So we're like, that's it. That's the offer and that's our circumstances. So yeah, putting deadlines would be a big tip. Um, Don't be afraid to be stern with them. Absolutely. Right, we're going to take a break and we'll bring it home with some longer form questions and answers. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Emily Barnett asks, transitioning to the buyer mindset, how do my partner and I know we're emotionally ready to start seriously looking to place offers and not just researching anymore for our principal place of residence? We have never lived out of home before, so the prospect of buying and moving out simultaneously is very daunting. Absolutely, Emily, you are not alone with that thought as well. So it's quite normal, first of all, and you need to appreciate that, don't you, Emily? Yeah, it is a very normal because it's a very normal feeling to be a bit worried, a bit anxious, nervous, all of those emotions that come with such a big commitment. One thing in reading Emily's question, and I'd be interested to know if she's planning on buying in the area they currently live in, is my immediate thought is if you're not quite feeling emotionally ready to do it, then maybe rent for even just a six-month term in the area that you're thinking about living in just to get a feel for it and really allow yourself the time to immerse yourself in the suburb and get a handle on the market. And I know it can be inconvenient moving twice, but I have definitely run into buyers who have bought in an area they've never lived in before and in quick succession wanted to sell out or maybe flip it to an investment because it wasn't for them. So whilst the upfront cost could be a little bit it's the opportunity cost of not quite understanding the area you want to be in. And it could be a good trial, particularly if you and your partner have never never lived out of home and it's the first time moving out, but also buying. That's a lot in one hit, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a busy time in their life. Uh, for Emily, I would say don't put so much pressure on yourself of putting in offers. I would get out there and actually put in a lowball offer that you probably know won't get accepted on a property that's okay for you to buy. Now, that might sound blasé, but what it does is it takes the pressure off that I'm, I'm pinning my hopes on buying the first thing that I put an offer in. If, if um, And I talked in uh, my academy about the 110-1, put in, uh, look at 100 properties, put in 10 offers, buy one, right? So what 10 offers does is it is it gives you the feeling that you're now playing the game. The pre-season's over. We're now into the, the main season where, where we're feeling as though we're a part of this and that gives us the confidence to, to buy the right thing when we see it. It's like training a muscle in that sense, isn't it? Because the more you do it, the more attuned you become to the actual process mm. and the emotion that's yeah. attached to that, particularly when it's um, your own home, there's a lot of emotion involved. But you're so right, you know, putting 10 in, although not everyone might get to that magic 10 number, um, they might find it on number <laughs> no. three. But the I know, <laughs> I understand the um, idea behind it. And that is that you do get used to the process because it can be a lot of built up emotion, uh, particularly if you're pinning everything on the, fir- on the first one that you really, really want. Yeah, yeah there's tears involved at times. <laughs> <laughs> Not tears of no, joy. No, All the time. Rob Mitch, 
Is flood-prone land a big no-go? Looking at a property that has a nearby creek and is zoned as flood-prone, but all insurance companies have normal fees, as if it wasn't a flood-prone area. So very confused. Mm. Look, Rob, me and you both, in the last 10 years, there's been a, yeah, call it climate change, call it whatever, there's been a lot more, uh, I suppose, variances of floods and and riverbanks breaking and and human error and all this sort of um, stuff going on um, right down the east coast mainly so we are getting this mixed messaging from online uh, whether it be council or software systems like archistar for example you've got to read the contract first of all to see whether it is by council in a flood um, prone area and see just what that is. If an insurance company is not changing their policy, they don't think there's any risk to. So it might be a one in 100. If it's a one in 15 year flood zone, that's a completely different story. The first, well, not the first thing, but one of the things I would do is look in the area and and talk to the locals and say, look, when was the last time it flooded here? What what did it affect? How high did it come up? And and get on the ground and actually ask some good questions. But yeah, if the if the insurance policies are a really big gauge for me, um, what about you, Emily? Yeah, I was going to touch on the frequency of the floods because most council maps that I have ever looked at do have colour grading of how frequent or how they're zoned, and the one in one hundred. Uh, zone is usually low risk. I had a client purchase in an area that was known to be flood prone and uh, it certainly, in terms of the insurance premiums, it actually did steer them away from certain properties by being across that. So some people might not even heard of the flood zoning before. So that's something to get across first and foremost, but do rely on the uh, certificates that are provided in the vendor statement or even just through council research and, and town planning. Um, but I wouldn't say I would personally put a blanket no-go over a, over a flood zone area. I think you just need to be across what the expectancy is to be affected by the flood and know that you're in the zone. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, f- same with me, not a no-go, even though people like you and me talk all this time about avoiding flood and bushfire and all those other things, there are variances of that and, and the insurance company is a big one for me. Moving on to Nick Claire. Nick asks, how do you know what to do to your house to increase value? I bought a place that's got no yard, for instance, and not sure about things like powdered workshops, pools, or what sort of internal improvements would be best. Interesting, because I think a lot of people, when they buy a property, they're first thought is to move in and enjoy it. And then once they go through that process, it's like, okay, now how can I actually make some money out of this to grow some equity and increase value and maybe do a few little uh, weekend projects? Um, Because I mean, me personally, I'm all about the minimal spend for the maximum return in terms of cosmetic things that can really enhance uh, property's value. We, a long time ago now, I'd have to find the episode and reference it. We did interview a company who do basically renovations for profit, um, LVL Group. I interviewed Matt, God, 
I was going to say, I think it was like two years ago, which sounds really weird, John, because I don't, it doesn't even feel like I've been on here for two years, but um, two years ago, um, and they spoke about the key cosmetic things. So window furnishings, paint, flooring, but in terms of adding things like Nick has mentioned here about powdered workshops, what's a powdered workshop? I, I know what a workshop is. What's a powdered workshop? Uh, I would say it's more of a heavy duty workshop that can um, you, you you can do anything out of. Okay, essentially. Okay, that makes more yeah. sense. Um, pools mm. and then internal improvements. I think I would first look at the inside cosmetic. What lipstick can we put on this property to increase the value? Because it's usually quite a quick exercise to do. Then I'd move on to the more advanced things. Yeah, it's interesting. Like when I first started investing. I, I was always told the the outside improves the value, and the inside improves the rent. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And and over time, that view really hasn't sort of stuck with me too much. I I think you've got to appreciate the whole property for what it's worth. But if you've got a value of doing a curbside and it looks pretty grubby and scrubby at the front, then it, it does make a difference, doesn't it, the, the first impression. Um, so I would definitely make the front look nice and um, that might be landscaping, might be fence, might be liquor paint, whatever. Um, no no cluttering of stuff around the place. So cleaning that side of things up, it really depends on how much you got to spend. Like where are you going to prioritise your money to get the, uh, the value out of it? If we're looking, Nick, for equity, then ideally we want to spend a dollar to get three back, but that all depends on the type of market we're trying to do that in. In a, in a hot market, we could spend one and get five back just because it's a moving market. In a flat, cold market where no one wants to buy, we could spend one and, and get one back or if we're lucky. So, yeah, there's, there's different versions of it, to, but I would look at, well, what does it need in order priority and how much have I got to spend? I also think there's a question there around what could you do that makes you enjoy the home more? A lot of people do a renovation or like an express reno prior to sale to maximize their return, which is all well and good. But I've often heard of agents um, speaking about the fact that their vendors become reluctant to sell because they fall back in love with the home after it looks nicer and they actually enjoy it. So don't forget to enjoy your home and you know do modifications that make you love it even more because you'll get more longevity out of it too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the principal place is uh, very generally speaking here, but it's usually in an area that you want to live. Um, so you want to put more money in it, into it to make it look good, don't you? And you generally, you by spending good money on it, you will get that return. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got another question in closing that's kind of along the lines of similar to Nick, but a more specific topic from Bell around aircon. So how does aircon or lack thereof affect property value and rental yields? So there's two pieces to the puzzle there. Bell bought a uh, an apartment in Melbourne CBD, 94 square metres, good size, uh, for 604,000, love the odd number. Well, it's an even number, but strange number <laughs> uh, with no aircon. And uh, Bell's gotten some quotes to install some aircon units. For one, it's 9,000. For two, it's 13,500. And for three, it's 17,500. More than I more than I expected, Bell says, but I don't know how to proceed. Well, an apartment with no aircon, I imagine, would get quite warm in a Melbourne summer. Yeah. I think uh, it would definitely be a tick box item that many renters would be looking for 
because they it's not like an ad it themselves. So from a rental yield component, I would safely assume that that would increase the desirability, which could increase the rent that you could uh, receive per week. Not drastically, but certainly would set you apart from ones that don't have it. I think it's a matter of where you place the aircon units in the property as well. Um, Bell did put some extra info around this. From memory, it was around the whether you put a unit in each of the bedrooms and one in the living dining. And she mentioned that the living dining one wouldn't reach the bedroom. So it's kind of like you can't just do one and it fixes all. Yeah, look, I, I, I think three would be overkill. I also think the price is quite high. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the access and maybe they've quoted on the fact that it takes them a lot longer to get into the building and do their thing because it's an apartment block. I, I don't know, but I've recently just put a split in um, in a regional centre, and it definitely wasn't nine thousand. Um, so I would go and get a few quotes for a start, uh, but I think you would get that money back through rents uh, and desirability when a valuer comes out. And I literally had a valuer come to my property today, and they were talking about some of the things that they were they would like to see in a property when performing valuation. I'm hoping to get one of them on the show, but um, yeah, and, and heating and cooling is is really a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's just a key tick box item. And, you know, working close with buyers, it's one of the first things they put on their requirement list is sufficient heating and cooling. So yeah, yeah. I would say get some more quotes, Bell, and then maybe look to, to go ahead with installation. Sounds like a plan. Well, that brings us to the end of our quick fire Q&As. We've also curated some of the other questions that people put forward in the Facebook group to put on particular topics because there were some themes that came through in the questions, which we love. So we'll make an episode out of some of the others. Um, in the future, we are looking to do a few more listener stories. They've been very well received in the past. And so um, if you are a listener and you've gone through a property journey that you feel is worth sharing and that other people could learn from, then reach out to John or myself in whatever way you see fit, probably through the show or my Instagram. I'm always on there. Um, <laughs> John Wright. And doing a very good job at it. John has told me before the show that he's been stealing my Instagram ideas. So No, I haven't stolen them oh. yet. I just thought it wouldn't be a bad idea You're if banking I did them up. because it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I could, I could never be you, right? And vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, we do want to get some more listener stories. We love Q and A's, and then of course any topics that you want us to cover off on, always let us know. But thanks for putting forward your questions today, and hopefully we've given you some food for thought at the very least. Absolutely. Until next time. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 